I think about a little bit of this about reading uh, Soviet, ex-Soviet uh, citizens talking about reading Pravda, where you're expected to read it cynically. You're expected to read between the lines. You're not expected to uh, to take it as as the absolute truth, despite the name of the newspaper. And, and you become a kind of person who knows that there's the official news outlet, which you can read very carefully and maybe between the lines, discover what they're saying and what they're not saying. And then you have other sources of information, whether it's scuttlebutt or an illegal radio to listen to, you know, uh, radio America or whatever it is to get uh, other voices. And especially in the age of the internet, you can read Hamodia in your house and then log in to other media outlets and and get access to other information and kind of triangulate all these sources and come up with your own opinion. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Apart from the horror that was engendered by the Chaim Walder revelations and his subsequent suicide, there was significant discussion about the Haredi media's various responses to the terrible situation. For example, although Yated Ne'aman, a newspaper associated with the ultra-Orthodox Degel HaTorah party, suspended Walder's regular column soon after the allegations first appeared in public, the newspaper printed a glowing obituary and even used the term Zatzal, or Zecher Tzadik Livracha, upon his death. Similarly, Kikar Shabbat and Bechadrei Haredim, two important Hebrew Haredi news sites, offered gushing obituaries in the hours after Walder's body was found. I should note that Haredi news sources outside of Israel generally showed a greater willingness to deal with the situation honestly. This week, Mishpacha magazine had several articles devoted to trauma and abuse although it seems that they still tend to avoid words like sexual abuse or sexual trauma, which, in my opinion, is a serious error. When the most appropriate words are taboo, victims lack the vocabulary to describe what abusers have done to them. And when the topic of sexual abuse is couched in terms like inappropriate behavior, victims lack permission to discuss their experience altogether. Nonetheless, the fact that a good portion of the magazine was dedicated to the problem is a positive sign. On the other hand, Ami magazine had Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu on its cover, the same Rabbi Eliyahu who convened the Beit-Din session in Sfat two weeks ago that Walder refused to attend and that heard testimony from 22 people attesting to Walder's crimes. Unlike the Mishpacha articles, Ami magazine was, in my opinion, using Rabbi Eliyahu in order to rewrite history, saying that the Haredi Rabbanim were on the side of good the entire time. Here's an example of one leading question, quote, there was some surprise at the speed with which your Bastin spoke out against him, contrary to the perception that some have put out that Rabbanim are slow to react in such cases. Note the questioner's sleight of hand. The authentic speed of Rav Eliyahu's Bastin is conflated with all of the Rabbanim, thus implying that all the Rabbanim acted properly, not only exceptions like Rav Eliyahu's Bastin. This is the tenor of the article, and its revising of history represents the opposite of the Torah norm of Midvar Sheker Tirchak, stay away from falsehood. Of course, this is also the same publication that two months ago featured an article entitled The Vibrancy of Iran's Jews. Rabbi Yehuda Gerami, chief rabbi of Iran, discusses how his community is thriving in the Islamic Republic. An article that was condemned by many as Ami's buying into 
the Islamic regime's propaganda machine. And I thank journalist Jackson Richman for pointing me to that article and the responses to it. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I wanted to better understand all of the ultra-Orthodox media, so I spoke to Dr. Yoel Finkelman, the author of Strictly Kosher Reading and someone who has genuine expertise in this area. We'll get to that interview momentarily. First, please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffeehouse team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffeehouse can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Dr. Yoel Finkelman is curator of the Chaim and Hannah Salomon Judaica Collection at the National Library of Israel. However, he is speaking to me in his role as an interested observer of Haredi media and not in any official work capacity. The opinions he expresses are his own. Dr. Yoel Finkelman, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. My pleasure. I'd like to open up with something that I spoke about in a Times of Israel blog post that I wrote about two weeks ago, the posthumous lionization of Chaim Walder. I wrote there that various Orthodox publications, and in this case, I'm speaking specifically about Israeli publications. Obviously, it's different in the United States, but Israeli online and print publications could have ignored his death. They could have condemned his actions. They could have reported it in a matter-of-fact way without honoring him. But swaths of Haredi media chose the fourth option, which was to treat him basically like a departed gadol. So I'd like to ask you, Yoel, why? What were they thinking? So I, I'm not sure that I can give you a 100% clear answer on what anybody's thinking. Um, but I would suggest that the Haredi media is perhaps not quite as different from general media as you might imagine. And its primary interests is in selling newspapers and selling advertising space. And it's doing so in an economic and political and cultural environment that's a little different from other kinds of media. But, um, but basically, it's interested in in selling its content to readers and to advertisers. And so there's kind of an opportunity when there's a big news story to get it out in a way that's going to attract readership. And so I think one of the things that's going on is how do we make this story as big, as interesting, and as fascinating as, as possible? And one way to do that is to surprise people 
And, and I think there was something surprising, especially after uh, it was kind of a pendulum that was swinging. It went from, it went from, well, let's, you know, defend these suspicions or not talk about them to, oh, maybe there really is something to these suspicions. And then after his suicide, it went back to, he's, he's really a great person. And then the pendulum swung back again uh, after there was a backlash to that. So, um, so I think this pendulum swinging is probably good for business. Um, well, can I ask so you something about one. that? When you talk about selling papers and what we might call sensationalism, even if it's not done in an inappropriate way, how could it be that selling papers would be better affected and better done by having a regular death of a departed person and that's it at the age of 53 rather than this man died by suicide after abusing kids? Talk about a sensationalist paper selling headline. Why would they say, no, this well, guy was great. I don't see how that could be to sell papers. So here, here I think we get back into the into the cultural differences between the general press and the Haredi press, and and the ideological uh, value in Haredi culture of a dichotomy between us good, them bad, um, is something that's that's very weighty, and I don't want to suggest kind of folding this back into my comment a minute ago about about selling newspapers. I don't think that that's the ideology that's coming exclusively from top down. I think that's that's also coming from bottom up. Us good, them bad is, is pretty hard baked into Haredi culture. And so for a Haredi newspaper, a Haredi media outlet to come out and say us bad, uh, them good, uh, Haaretz, which broke this story, you know, good, um, our guys bad, is is not a good way to get on people's good side. That's not the brand that uh, that these media outlets are trying to sell. I see. That's true. How about? I mean, I realize that this might be going outside of their comfort zone, but saying he's good, they're bad. But that also means the victims in the Haredi community, who outnumber the Chaim Walders in the community, at least in this case. They're bad, too. In other words, because both sides are Haredim, by saying us good, them bad, even though, yes, Haaretz is part of it, but there are other cases where it's not necessarily Haaretz, where the victims are not believed, and therefore you're saying our own members of the Haredi society are also bad. Is them the Amcha, the people, and us as the rabbis? How do we understand that? So in, in, the, in the stuff that I read, it wasn't presented as... Haredi false claims or victims are coming across with false claims. Um, and other than Raftau, who's not really part of the Haredi community, who did say that, for the most part, it was uh, the, the public conversation is damaging. Um, and therefore, the victims should uh, turn in-house quietly to local rabbinic leaders and take care of it on the, you know, on the quiet. Um, but the public conversation is what's bad. What you know, lashon hara is what's bad, uh, and that's what's leading to all kinds of bad outcomes. And so, it's not necessarily painting the victims as bad people who are trying to destroy the community or undermine the community. Uh, and of course, you have to take into account that for the most part, the victims are politically and culturally weak. So, you know, what uh, they and what army, right? Is mm -hmm. is 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 the implicit question and you know the grassroots kind of turning back the campaign about uh, about the flyers that have been sent out in the last couple of weeks is a response 
uh, by grassroots uh, that might actually indicate some kind of cultural shift, uh, but that again might not. Speaking about these papers, these media outlets, and talking about what drives them to write something a certain way, I realize that, as you said, they're driven by the same pressures that apply to all media companies, namely to make money. At the same time, there is a certain level of truth which every media company that's worth anything is bound to, whether we're talking about the New York Times or Haaretz or the Washington Post or Kikar Shabbat, presumably there is a basic level of truth that we would expect. The Washington Post isn't simply going to print something that's absolutely false, unless perhaps it's an opinion piece that can't really be refuted. In terms of news, though, they're going to at least have some level of truth at minimum. That's what it means to be a journalist. Do Haredi institutions or media institutions have that same value or is truth considered secondary to protecting the community? Um, so I, I think it works like this. I think media outlets that value truth are the historical exception and not the rule. Uh, there was a kind of short period at some point in the mid 20th century when when uh, there was some kind of sense of of shared journalistic ethics, uh, which wasn't flawless. But that certainly wasn't true in the dawn of newspapers in the 17th and 18th century. And I don't think it's true anymore today. Um, I think uh, the, you know, the mass media, the easy access to information uh, has created a situation in which we all log in to hear and, and, and see and read what we want to know. And so you have all kinds of media outlets that, uh, that say what their audiences want to hear. And that the more you know, pardon my cynicism here, but the more responsible media outlets uh, are doing, uh, dedicated, dedicating themselves to truth because that's what the customers demand. Uh, and in areas, if you take, you know, any given media outlet, if you take, you know, the New York Times, uh, when it comes to topics where their readership isn't so interested in truth, but lo and behold, you discover that they're, you know, that they're not treating that all that well. And if you, you know, same of Fox News and same of, of, of Hamodia and Yatet Neeman. Uh, so I don't think it's really a categorical, categorical difference. I think media creates what the audience is willing to buy. At the same time, there certainly have to be pressures on Haredi media institutions, the Haredi press, when dealing with issues like sexual predators that might be different from simple media companies that don't have a rabbinic oversight committee or aren't at least in their own minds bound to rabbinic dictates. Can you talk about some of the pressures that do work on Haredi sites? Well, so I'm, I, I don't know what happens between the, the supposed rabbinic uh, oversight committees and the actual press. Um, I, my sense is that what's key to Haredi media outlets brand is that they are the kind of thing that you can bring into your house and still feel uh, relatively good about yourself. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's, that's the key. And as long as there's an audience that wants uh, a certain kind of, of ideological approach, then that's what the media is going to create. I mean, you can see that, to, you know, take the example of, of printing, uh, printing women's pictures. Um, I've spoken to many publishers and editors of, of Haredi media outlets who have been quite clear. I don't care about publishing women's pictures, but I'm going to lose more. Uh, I'm going to lose more readers by publishing women's pictures than I will by, by leaving them out. So I, I really think that the market 
basically wins. Um, but I also think that some percentage of the Haredi leadership, I mean, I think of this readership, not leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about a little bit of this about reading uh, Soviet, ex-Soviet uh, citizens talking about reading Pravda where you're expected to read it cynically. You're expected to read between the lines. You're not expected to, uh, to take it as, as the absolute truth, despite the name of the newspaper. And, and you become a kind of person who knows that there's the official news outlet, which you can read very carefully, and maybe between the lines discover what they're saying and what they're not saying. And then you have other sources of information, whether it's scuttlebutt or an illegal radio to listen to, you know, uh, Radio America, or whatever it is to get uh, other voices. And especially in the age of the internet, you can read Hamodia in your house and then log in to other media outlets and and get access to other information and kind of triangulate all these sources and come up with your own opinion. Um, that doesn't strike me as a very healthy way of running public discussion, but it strikes me as descriptively accurate about what's happening, at least to a significant portion of sophisticated Haredi media readers. So, that's obviously a very cynical, even if accurate viewpoint in terms of the way they understand what their job is. Do the publishers of these media sites believe their own press? Are they no. actually in agreement or they know that it's not true? No, at least in my conversations with them in other contexts. And maybe they only say that because they're talking to me. But uh, but the, the publishers and the editors and the writers who I've spoken to, spoken to are very, very conscious of the way in which uh, they say one thing and they mean another. And they expect some of their readers to, to hear something that they're not explicitly saying. That's interesting. Are you saying, Yoel, that they actually write it in such a way that there can be a sort of double entendre or some sort of meaning between the lines? Oh, yeah. Or they're writing pure fiction? You're saying yeah. it's not if pure you, fiction. If you read, read an op-ed in, let's say, Mishpacha magazine, um, you know, not to be overly academic here, but if, if you think about uh, Leo Strauss's view, persecution and the art of writing, right? Leo Strauss talks about this idea that when you're dealing with with Um, shocking ideas or potentially uh, dangerous ideas, you need to have plausible deniability. You need to be able to say whether it's to the masses who don't understand you or to uh, the political leaders who might persecute you. No, 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 you're reading me wrong. And so there's this kind of uh, what he calls esoteric writing, and he finds it in ancient philosophy and he finds it in medieval philosophy and modern philosophy. Um, You say one thing, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and a lot of readers know how to read between the lines. Read any op-ed in Mishpacha magazine and uh, you know, with that eye, and you'll discover, I think, uh, lots of interesting things. And I've heard writers tell me explicitly that that's, you know, that that's where they're at. I have to say, and this is perhaps my own fault, I never really gave Haredi Media the credit to say they're writing on an esoteric level. But that's very interesting to apply Leo Strauss's dictum to Haredi Media. Are the Haredi publications afraid of daylight or are they afraid of not selling papers? And what I mean by that question, obviously that's a sweeping question because everyone's different, but let's put them in broad strokes. Let's paint this in broad strokes. When they write things which they don't believe, is it simply a matter of pleasing the public or is there also an element of trying to protect their community? In that sense, feeling a sense of social responsibility, even if I disagree with how that responsibility is manifest. So I I, I don't know the answer to that question. You know, especially if I have to get inside the heads of editors and publishers. Um, But my sense is that it's a combination of 
both. There are very, very powerful uh, people who hold political cards in Haredi public life. And they do not want sunlight shined on what's going on, just like powerful people in every institution and in every community do not want sunlight on what they're doing. And so if you have the tools to threaten, to imply a threat, to, uh, to you know, control or to influence how media is going to present this or that issue, you're going to take advantage of it. And that's always going to be in the background, um, you know, do a case study of, of, you know, how Fox News reports on, on U.S. Uh, politics, depending on where Donald Trump is in the polls. And you'll see that, uh, you know, that some of that dynamic is going on. So there's definitely implied, uh, you know, implied consequences if you mm -hmm. irritate the wrong people. And again, I don't think that that's categorically different than the Haredi community. It's why so many other institutions, non-Haredi institutions, fail miserably in dealing with sexual, powerful sexual predators in their midst and you can you know pick your non Haredi uh, scandal uh, over the past you know 50 years uh, and discover that yeah there were enablers and people who were silent and people who were cowered into and people in the press who knew and decided not to report it because it was too threatening. Let's talk about American Haredi media for a moment here. I mentioned before my blog post which talked about Israeli Haredi publications in the immediate aftermath of Walder's suicide this past week, both Ami Magazine in the United States and Mishpacha Magazine, the English version, came out with articles that dealt explicitly or implicitly with the Walters situation. I don't think they mentioned his name. I have to say that through a cursory looking at Mishpacha, I was somewhat impressed. They actually had several articles about it. They dealt with it relatively forthrightly. Again, not mentioning his name. We can disagree with what they said, but they weren't ignoring the problem. On the other hand, Ami Magazine put Rav Shmuel Eliyahu on the cover, and I actually had a bit of a fun Facebook argument with a couple of people. Um, some people said, isn't this great progress? They actually put Rav Eliyahu on the cover, and I said, not at all, because the subtitle of that cover article is a quote from the interview on the inside, quote, I truly admire the Rabbanim of the Haredi community in B'day Brak. I got to see their genuine care, concern, and emotion. And to me, reading that article, the questions were leading questions designed to exonerate the Haredi community rather than say, oh, we made a mistake or anyone did something wrong. It's saying, wow, we and Rav Shmuel Eliyahu are on the same side and always have been on the same side. An obvious example of that was in the introduction to the article, the publisher, Rabbi Yitzchak Frankfurter, wrote that, wow, look what happened when this first came out. Yeted de Amman immediately suspended Walder's column. He did not mention, of course, that they wrote a glowing obituary in his honor with the word Zatzal after his name. So what gives, right? Yeah, what gives? Yeah, exactly. so I think both, both sides of that are probably right. Meaning, I think that those who claim that the Rav Shmuel Eliyahu article in Ami magazine um, is, is kind of a breath of fresh air and a willingness to talk openly, that, you know, that side is right. And, and the side that you represented, where it's, it's really meant to defend the basic Haredi infrastructure, uh, that's also true. Right. And that's part of this kind of Straussian reading that I'm suggesting. Right. You I mean, it's not so esoteric as far as I'm concerned. It's pretty open. Yeah. Although it allows people to hear different things and creates plausible deniability. Right. It allows you to say, listen, uh, something is profoundly broken because everybody knows who's reading the Ami article 
you know, Ami Magazine article, everybody knows that Yated Ne'eman did not do a perfect job, or at least many people know. And, you know, everybody knows, many people know that uh, that rabbinic uh, authorities have kept things on the hush-hush when it was in their self-interest. And, and there's a lot of cynicism out there. But you don't say it, right? And you let people hear it between the lines. And, and everybody knows that Ami Magazine would trash a religious Zionist rabbi at the drop of a hat. Um, so here we have an opportunity to make ourselves look like we're the good guys, we're cooperating with others. We've got the community's best interest in mind and also doing a little bit of an al-chet, um, a little bit of opening the discourse in part because that's what the U.S. Haredi community is, audience is demanding, right? They don't, people are getting fed up and they don't want to hear anymore. Um, everything's perfect because it's just not plausible anymore. So I, I think there's a way in which, you know, Ami Magazine, which is politically and culturally to the right of Mishpacha, is is positioning itself kind of to speak to the concerns of the community that are rising to the surface. Because if you get too far out of touch, you're going to read, you're going to lose readership. I had Rabbi Yosef Blau from Yeshiva University on the podcast last week, and he suggested that the United States Haredi readership is more demanding of truth in this case. He said in part because they never heard of Rav Edelstein. In Israel, Rav Edelstein, the Rosh Hashiva Poinovich, came out with a statement which said that the real villains here are the people who reported about it, etc. And therefore, everyone had to get in line to sort of deal with that Das Torah that was put out there because people in the United States never even heard of him. They didn't have that same societal or rabbinic pressure on them to do the same sort of thing. Do you agree with that statement? I, I think that's probably true. I would also add that the American Haredi community is much more diverse and much more of a continuum and the lines between uh, between kind of right-wing modern orthodox yeshivish and left-wing yeshivish and, you know, full-fledged American Haredi. There's kind of a lot of gray area on that continuum and there's less gray area on that continuum in, in Israel where the where the the lines between the migzarim, between the different sub-communities within the Israeli populace are, are a lot more sharply drawn. And so and so that that will change also how the you know, how the different the way in which the Haredi media conceives of its audience and ex, its expectations of its readership. So I don't want to give too much credit to Ami Magazine of having a consistent editorial policy. You can hear I'm not the biggest fan of that particular magazine. But if this really is something that's going on with the es esoteric writing, trying to move in a certain direction while at the same time trying to defend the Haredi community, there are some decisions that they make which are confusing to me. For example, about maybe 10 months ago, they had Rabbi Yoshua Pinto on the cover. Rabbi Yoshua Pinto is the ostensible chief rabbi of Morocco. And they talked about what a great tzaddik he was. What's the purpose of that? Let me explain if people don't know. Pinto is not the chief rabbi of Morocco. He actually is pretending to be the chief rabbi of Morocco. I have a letter where the chief rabbi of Morocco asked him to cease and desist calling himself the chief rabbi. I think he's actually something like the chief kashrut inspector. Beyond that, and even more importantly... Pinto was in jail for financial shenanigans in Israel for several years, as far as I understand. Why would they put someone like that on the cover? Here's the question. This is not a matter of defending something going on in the Haredi community. This is somebody you can spit out and say he's not part of us and leave him alone. Why bring attention to something which can only cause shame to the community? No newspaper or magazine, especially magazines, have consistent editorial policies because they're boring if you have, right? If you can't have, you know, I don't know, if, if Cosmopolitan... 
uh, we'll talk about how important it is to be, you know, to dress perfectly and, you know, to be sexy. And then in the back pages, it'll have an article about how the, uh, the, you know, the fashion industry is manipulating you. So, uh, you know, no, nobody's consistent. Yeah. Well, a lot of what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And frankly, it's actually, uh, <laughs> it may helps me better understand what's going on. But on the other hand, it kind of makes me feel like there's nothing we can really do. And that because it's driven by financial pressures, the Haredi media is largely driven by internal dynamics, that this is simply the way it's going to be. And in fact, I'll cite uh, Professor Mark Shapiro's book, Changing the Immutable, where he talks about historical revisionism that took place and has taken place throughout Judaism throughout the centuries. And his conclusion kind of was, um, what do we do about it? Well, that's just the way it's always been. It's kind of the way it's always going to be. Is that hopeless note accurate? Or I'm not speaking about changing the immutable or Professor Shapiro. I'm talking about in general, this idea that, you know, the media is what it is because it's driven by financial pressures and societal pressures. And no matter how much we protest not putting in pictures of women or historical revisionism, etc., it's not going to matter to them because they're just trying to sell papers. And this is the way it works. What do you say? Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think that the amount of leverage that people outside the community have on the internal discourse of the Haredi community is pretty small. If we're not buying their newspapers and we're not clicking on the advertisements on their websites, uh, then we're tourists. And, you know, tourists have some influence on the economy, but that's not what's really going to make you know, that's really not what's going to make or break the difference. Things will shift when the Haredi lay people insist that they shift, uh, not when outsiders, you know, insist that they shift. Uh, and when, you know, a, a newspaper or a website feels like it's going to get more readers by being honest about sexual assault, then it'll be honest about sexual assault. And, and when outsiders create, you know, activism, then you know, we'll ruffle some feathers, but that's not really what's going to make the difference. And it could very well be that uh, that some of that is shifting. Um, you know, people have made entire careers uh, from youth to retirement predicting radical shifts in the Haredi community and being wrong. So I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't overstate the sense in which, you know, the shifts, the Walder affair is going to be a ground shifting event in Haredi discussion of of sexual abuse. But there are some, you know, some signs that that there is a demand from the grassroots for more openness and more transparency. Um, and, and that's the stuff that's going to make a difference. Not, no offense, a podcast that's not really uh, um, appealing to the Haredi community and isn't going to get listened to by by the Haredi editors. Understood. So some of the grassroots efforts that people are doing now to push towards and push against the Haredi media outlets, you're saying it's misplaced. Really, the effort should be given towards the grassroots, given to the Haredi public on some level. Although the question is, how do you reach them? The answer is through the Haredi media, and it becomes a cycle where I'm not sure how you enter into that dynamic without, I mean, being an outsider, it sounds like it's almost impossible. I, I wouldn't say almost impossible. I think it's a kind of, you know, cliche me, if you will. It's it's a second order effect. If those people within the Haredi community who are listening to what's going on outside, if they are inspired to be more, you know, to do things 
uh, within their own Dalad Amot, within their own local communities, then there's more of a chance that things are going to change. Um, I, I really do not want to take anything away from the many, many, many people uh, uh, on the edges or outside the Haredi community who are doing fantastic, wonderful things to protect victims, to protect uh, uh, to protect those who have been hurt, to prosecute uh, those who are victimizing, and to shed light on things that need to have light shed on them. I don't mean to take anything away. I just mean that that you know grassroots are really hard to shift, and and outsiders have you know limited power. But lo alecham lachalik more, veloata ben chorinli batelmi mena. So you know if we can't fix everything, let's at least do our piece. Let me ask you a final question, Yoel. What is your feeling about the insidious nature of revisionism? Meaning, is it a problem? And the reason I ask this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. Let's say, for example, change does come to the Orthodox community, the Haredi community, and fits and starts, but it's done in such a way that it's pretending that there never actually was a problem in the past. That's how we're able to do it, let's say. Let's say pretend that we have a publisher who would argue, yes, I know there have been problems, but the way that I'll affect change is by changing the past, indicating that a value which now matters to us always was our value. And in so doing, I'll bring the community along in that direction. Someone might argue that the norm of truth is hurt by such an attitude. Others might say, who cares as long as there's change? What do you think about historical revisionism? Is it something which we should fight against or celebrate? Well, I, I, I think there's a difference between the descriptive level and the prescriptive level. Um, at the descriptive level, of course, there's going to be historical revisionism. Everybody's always constructing a usable past. Uh, everybody's always looking at the past and trying to figure out, you know, how what narrative leads to the future that I want. Uh, dispassionate historians uh, are few and far between. And even then, you look back 50 years later and realize that they had you know, that they had agendas as well, even the best and most dispassionate historians. That's how a conservative community is going to shift. A conservative community is not going to shift by saying, um, we've been totally misguided. It's going to shift by saying, uh, you know, the stuff that we're doing now is largely continuous with what we did in the past. And then historians will come along and they'll look backwards and they'll say, notice the historical shift that happened mm -hmm. in the conservative community, you know, 30 years ago or 50 years ago or yesterday. Um, but prescriptively, yeah, of course, people's conception of the past is going to change as they change and as their visions of the future change, because that's what human beings do. Okay. Dr. Yoel Finkelman, thank you very much for joining me today. This was very interesting. Pleasure. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? 
Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.